Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome to Merrick's Experts podcast. My name is Grzegorz Stets, and I'm a Merrick's analyst focusing on EU-China affairs. In today's episode, we're joined by Radosław Sikorski, MEP of the European People's Party, chair of the European Parliament's delegation for relations with the United States, and the author of the European People's Party's China strategy paper that was released in the beginning of March. In our brief conversation, we'll go through a range of strategic issues related to EU-China relations. And these will include the implications of the exchange of sanctions between the EU and China, the prospects for transatlantic cooperation on China, and the logic behind the EU's Indo-Pacific strategy that is now in the works. Mr. Sikorski, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. We will have a lot to discuss in our conversation today as it comes against the backdrop of retaliatory sanctions against the EU by Beijing and relaunching of the EU-US high-level dialogue on China. But to start our conversation, I want to ask you about the first ever China paper that was adopted by the European People's Party in March. And you were the driving force behind this paper. So what was your goal when you were writing it? And what were um, any particular gaps in the EU's discussion on China that you were aiming to fill? Well, I think it's uh, a recognition by the European People's Party, the most powerful in the European Parliament, of the importance both of China and of China's challenge to uh, relations with the EU and EU's relations uh, with the United States. Uh, So I'm very glad that over several weeks uh, we've had in-depth discussions with people of uh, very different views, and we've put together a paper that uh, has commanded consensus. It was passed unanimously by the EPP group in the European Parliament, And we now have a considered policy towards uh, the People's Republic. So in this paper, you propose the following approach. Cooperate where possible, compete where needed, and confront where necessary. And at least to me, it sounds like a guiding principle that you would want to be applied in every aspect of EU-China interactions, which sounds a bit different from the thematic categorization of China as a cooperation partner, economic competitor, and systemic rival that we all know from the EU-China strategic outlook. But how do you see the difference, the real difference between what you proposed in the paper and the approach in the strategic outlook? I don't think there is a difference. It's just a different, uh, I hope, sharper formulation. Well, the European Commission is a guardian of the treaties and um, negotiates uh, trade and investment agreements promoting trade is in its DNA. Here at the European Parliament, as representatives of the peoples of Europe, we can think about the relationship more broadly, including in strategic terms. So I hope the the EPP China paper, which I authored and which has now been unanimously um, adopted, is more of a strategic and all-encompassing proposal for a policy towards China. I hope it's broader um, because our relationship with China is now no longer a purely economic one. China is, uh, or at least hopes to be, an emerging superpower, and that requires a serious, all-encompassing approach. 
And talking about this all-encompassing approach, there is one point that you devote quite a considerable amount of attention in the paper that was not really featured in the strategic outlook. And by that, I mean the so-called sharp power. So disinformation operations and uh, related general need for building China knowledge capacity in Europe. So how do you see the prospects of the EU devoting more attention to this issue and moving forward on that front? Well, I don't think Chinese communism is an export commodity, and I don't think anybody in Europe is going to adopt China's ideology as their own. So in that sense, we are immune, I think. Uh, what some people will be um, sensitive to is uh, China's success and power. Um, our prosperity depends on uh, maintaining the trade flow and um, uh, maintaining the relationship with China at the right temperature without allowing it on both sides uh, to, to boil over. China, within our memory, was a poor third world country. It has now put a stake to become uh, the world's leading country and is already a superpower. So, of course, we need to know more about China, China's methods, China's capabilities, China's ambitions and the um, direction of China's development. It's a country that... Uh, by different methods from ours, has uh, achieved enormous success. And that success can uh, lead to um, greater all-round prosperity. Uh, it will certainly lead to changes in the global division of prestige. And it's certainly an ideological challenge. So I think high time that we've given China the, uh, the attention that she deserves. Referring exactly to this ideological challenge, as you said, does China's retaliation to the EU's Xinjiang-related human rights sanctions change something in your thinking about the EU's China policy? What are your thoughts on this move? Well, you know, the Chinese were responding to our sanctions on people that we feel are, uh, and we know, are responsible for repression. And they are not justified in the sense that uh, the people's sanctions in the EU including your institute, are not responsible for any repressions. What they are guilty of is speaking their mind about China. So there is no symmetry here. And I think it's a mistake by China because it makes, uh, makes it personal and some people uh, will harden their views on China. It has um, created a group of MEPs who now feel that China has committed a, a hostile act towards them. Uh, merely for speaking up on human rights. And I think it will make the passage and the ratification of the uh, investment agreement in the European Parliament harder, not easier. If I can get back to this issue of personal perspective, if you were writing the China paper after the exchange of sanctions took place, would you write anything differently? I don't think so. Um, I would, uh, I mean, the paper doesn't aim to uh, address all the problems and all the issues in EU-China relations. But, you know, China has some successes, but China also makes mistakes. I personally think that um, clamping down on Hong Kong is a mistake because it makes a peaceful unification with Taiwan less likely. 
just like I think it's a mistake by China to have announced that China will now no longer hide its power and hide its ambition, but will threaten its its neighbors near and far uh, when she sees fit. Um, this goes uh, against the previous policy and it goes against the grain of some of China's best strategic thinkers. So I, I think it was a mistake. And now we are beginning to see the consequences. Talking about those consequences, the situation linked to sanctions was called by the high representative Borrell as new circumstances or a new situation in the EU-China relations. But you could say that it actually stems from a very old dilemma, which is how can the EU balance its values and interests when dealing with an actor that is as different as China. And the idea within the strategic outlook was, broadly speaking, to develop dedicated channels and instruments for dealing with specific aspects of relation with China. Do you think that we may see any tangible changes to this approach? Will the political tensions have a significant impact on other aspects of the relation? The problem is not entirely new. We've traded intensely with countries of different values before in our history. Take uh, our relationship with Saudi Arabia, which is a a theocratic uh, non-democracy with which we've traded arms and uh, oil for decades. The problem is not that China is different. The problem, uh, from our point of view, is that China has become so powerful. And the question is whether it's realistic to think that we can sanction China and that China will respond in the way that uh, people imagine she will. It's one thing to impose sanctions on a poor third world country and another to try to impose it on an aspiring superpower. So I, I think we have to be careful in how we structure this. At the same time, of course, we have the right to not consume products that are products of uh, forced labor. That's that's uh, our right, uh, who we buy from. So in your view, and this is, as you say, a very complex issue, in your view, will those tensions related to sanctions have any concrete and tangible impact on EU's-China policy? Well, I think it will, at the cutting edge, it will uh, all be discussed and come to the fore in the process of ratification, the investment agreement, because many of these things uh, are in there, like um, proposal and demand by my colleagues that China should um, sign up to international labor organization conventions on, uh, on the prohibition of forced labor and on the various areas where we allow investments in Europe and China is due to allow European investment on its territory. It's going to be a really tricky thing to continue to trade with China at the volume we do while having a fundamental uh, conflict on values an increasing uh, Sino-American rivalry that has uh, a military component to it. Moving to this geopolitical question that you've just raised, and I want to ask you about your perspective as the chair of the European Parliament's delegation for relations with the US. What should be the EU's position within the EU-US-China triangle, and how should the EU go on about communicating its position? 
Well, I think we need to tell our American uh, friends and allies, frankly, that we sympathize with the U.S. position and at the ideological level, of course, we stand side by side with the United States, a fellow democracy. But at the same time, um, U.S. allies in the Far East are not our military allies. They are fellow democracies, mostly, but they are not military allies. And we have no military assets to bring uh, to that region anyway. So we will collaborate with the U.S. in the regulatory sphere, in the uh, promotion of democracy sphere, in the um, setting of standards sphere, on practically everything except uh, the military field where our public will not allow us to take on commitments this far away from our shores. But even military issues aside, it would seem that the EU has been reluctant to politically and vocally align itself with the US on China, avoiding its more confrontational rhetoric. But as you point out, if we take a look at those concrete tangible matters, such as discussions on Trade and Technology Council, rulebook for digital economy or reform of the WTO, there does seem to be an appetite on both sides of the Atlantic to cooperate on those issues. So in your view, what is it really that brings the transatlantic partners together on China? And perhaps even more interestingly, what is it that divides them on China? Well, what brings us together is, first of all, our desire to be safe uh, from predatory technological inroads, to maintain our industrial base and to uh, perhaps bring some of our um, supply chains uh, closer to home and to, uh, to maintain our way of life meaning uh, open society uh, and democracy and not be um, uh, subject to values that are alien to us. But Europe, unlike the United States, knows the limits of its hard power. Europe is not capable of playing those geopolitical games that the US uh, uh, has to play as the world's top dog um, in China's periphery. So when it comes to the EU and those geopolitical games, what do you expect to see in the upcoming EU's Indo-Pacific strategy? Do you think that the EU will want to deepen its relations with the region also on a geostrategic level, or is it going to be primarily about economic exchanges? No, as you say, it should deepen, but it will be mostly economic. And one even wonders uh, how far, for example, India wants to go in freeing up trade. From what I understand, India is not that keen on free trade agreements. But yes, we, we need to trade and, uh, and invest both ways uh, with those countries. But, um, but we are not going to make them our allies. To wrap up our discussion, what would be your advice, your takeaway for European stakeholders that are working on China in this specific moment of increased political tensions? We should keep cool heads. China still has a, an interest in uh, growing its economy. A, a, a conflict with the West would not suit China's interests. I hope cool councils prevail in Beijing. I, I hope um, that we will um, assess realistically, both 
to what extent China has just come back into into the position that she used to uh, she used to have. What our faults historically have been towards China in the last 200 years, and to what extent we can accommodate Chinese ambitions within existing rules and existing um, system of alliances. Um, uh, we should um, play to our strengths, as always, um, to our soft power, but also sort out our vulnerabilities as regards uh, industrial base and um, the technology gaps. But we should realize that this is going to be different than our rivalry with the Soviet Union, because with China, we are much more intimately connected. The Soviet Union was a geopolitical challenge, but a, a, a trade and um, a, and industrial pygmy. You know, the Soviet Union exported oil, gas, uh, some uh, wood and vodka, uh, whereas, uh, you know, we are talking to each other on Chinese equipment. So China is a much more intimate partner for us, while at the same time being a systemic rival. So this this calls for very sophisticated thinking, and it should be at least as sophisticated as, as Chinese thinking. Mr. Shikarsky, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. It was a pleasure to have you. Pleasure. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.